Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Simply Medics podcast. If you've been listening with us since the beginning of this season, thank you. Now I'm going to get into last week's podcast. You are reviewing the blood results at the end of a normal working day when you receive a call from the lab to inform you that your patient has a potassium of 5.8. The patient, Tony Adishino, is a 53-year-old man who has been treated for AKI. He has a, he was admitted with a four-day history of diarrhea and vomiting due to norovirus. Past medical history includes type 2 diabetes and hypertension for which he takes metformin, amlodipine and ramipril. His metformin and ramipril have been suspended and he's being managed with IV fluids and monitoring of his fluid balance. Here are the questions. One, what are the causes of hyperkalemia? So if you saw last week's learning bite, you would have seen um, some of the causes and just going to break it down into four, um, but go into more depth on the most important one, which is renal. So apart from renal, when there's an increase in potassium circulation, this could be through supplementation such as Sandok or IV fluids with um, potassium, rhabdomyolysis or massive transfusions that can lead to an increase in potassium in the blood. Um, certain conditions such as DKA or digoxin toxicity shifts potassium from its intracellular compartment where 98% of potassium is into the extracellular compartment causing hyperkalemia. You can also get pseudo-hyperkalemia. So that's where you get a falsely raised potassium in your blood and it can be due to things such as having the tourniquet on for a prolonged period of time before you take bloods. Um, renal is the most common cause of hyperkalemia. So if we listen back to the pod case, um, we know that this gentleman is in AKI. Um, AKI and TKD causes the re- the kidneys not to be filtered properly. Therefore, there's an accumulation of potassium in the blood. Medications which can cause AKIs also lead to an increase in potassium in the blood. And medications which interfere with the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. So what happens is when this system is activated, sodium is retained to increase blood pressure. And whilst sodium is retained, potassium is excreted. So anything that interferes with this, such as ACE inhibitors, ARBs, NSAIDs, they cause potassium to also be retained rather than excreted. And finally, any medications which interfere with potassium excretion in the kidneys, such as spironolactone, causes hyperkalemia. Number two, what are your initial investigations for Mr. Adishina? So hyperkalemia um, <laughs> is the bane of my life, but there's just a set method. And if you're in doubt, always, always consult your trust guidelines. So first thing you want to do, ECG, you're going to look for any hyperkalemic changes. So are the T waves tall and tented? Is the QRS complex um, wide? Are the P waves becoming flattened or absent? These are all classic signs. Next, you want to do a gas. You want to see, is are they acidotic? You can get a quick um, value of the potassium that way as well. Um, and you want to repeat the bloods just to rule out pseudo-hyperkalemia and to get a more accurate um, picture of the potassium in the blood. And you also want to take a fine through... Um, 
you also want to go through their drug chart and see what are the offending drugs. So are there any ACE inhibitors? So this gentleman in the podcast had Ramipril, which can contribute to AKI and it was rightfully suspended. Um, is there any spironolactone? So it's important to look at those and withhold the medication for the time being. And the final question is three. How would you manage this patient's hyperkalemia? So I always consult my trust guidelines and first I classify it. So this gentleman has a potassium of 5.8, which is actually classified as mild hyperkalemia. Um, but you want to know if it's mild and follow the guidelines to treat accordingly. And you do the same for moderate and severe. Um, if it's severe, it's important to act quickly because it can lead to a hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. And the things you want to do is, first of all, give um, calcium gluconate because it protects the heart. Potassium can um, affect the contractility of the heart, so you want to minimise the risk of cardiac arrest. You want to give insulin um, and salbutamol nebs if it's very severe. That plays a role of driving potassium back into the intracellular compartment from the extracellular compartment. And as you're doing this, follow the guidelines for when to repeat the bloods and the gases and to monitor the ECGs to check is this treatment working. And that's also important because if despite everything, treatment's not working, you need to be on that phone to your ITU reg or your renal reg and just let them know, you know, this is a patient on my ward, we've done ABC, yet the potassium still doesn't seem to be coming back down. So it's likely they're going to need hemodialysis. So that kind of early warning is greatly appreciated. And that's how you manage hyperkalemia. I personally have learned the hard way, but hopefully you don't have to. So um, now we're going to focus on mental health. So we have done a podcast episode on mental health when we were both medical students, but this time we want to focus specifically on the workforce. There's been many things that we've spoken about, um, the pandemic, being doctors, and just the different aspects of mental health with this new role. So um, yeah, I'm going to just hand it over to you for some sobering statistics on mental health. Thank you, Moya. Um, so yes, like Moya said, we've done a previous podcast episode in our first season about mental health, and it was about mental health in general. However, today we're going to focus on mental health, in particular, mental health of doctors, just because um, there's some sort of harrowing statistics as to how common mental illness is amongst doctors. According to the Health Practitioner website, 25% of doctors are at risk of having a men- are at risk of having mental health illness, and the suicide rates among doctors is between two to two to four times greater than that of the general population. So there is quite some scary statistics when it comes to mental health problems within um, within the current workforce. Now, according to a study that was done in 2017, looking at um, it's a system, systematic review, looking at lots of different um, articles and lots of different questionnaires and surveys, the overall conclusion of this um, study showed that the prevalence of psychiatry morbidity ranges between 17 to 52% of doctors, and burnout scores for emotional exhaustion range between 31 to 54.3%. Which is ridiculously high. 
Now, amongst um, amongst the, the the medical workforce, out of all the different specialties um, and all the different um, sort of subspecialties, the two specialties where people are more likely to have, which have the highest suicide rate, sorry, are general practice and psychiatry. Um, and these are sort of two very big patient-facing roles that deal with high high number of, of patients, as well as deal with patients who have been through the most traumatic things in their lives. Um, so I can see the reason why this can take a toll on um, our colleagues in general practice and in psychiatry. Now, just to dig in a bit deeper about mental health, looking at different specialties, the Practitioner Health website has a couple of things about how many, how, the percentage of doctors within the within specific specialties have actually accessed their resources. Now, Practitioner Health is um, an independent, well, it's run by the NHS, but it's for doctors in particular. And it helps give sort of um, counselling and therapy to doctors who are going through mental health problems. Um, So according to their statistics, GPs compromise roughly 50% of the patients seen by Practitioner Health. Obstetricians and gynecologists, according to their website, almost all ONG practitioner patients have presented to their service in the last 10 years with mental health problems. That's 92%, and only 6% with an addiction issue. Now, with um, and with um, anaesthetics, around about 212 um, anaesthetists have presented to practitioner health over the past 10 years. And they have sort of a higher female to male percentage who've actually accessed their services. So looking at all these different statistics and looking at how many how the percentage of people who are accessing practitioner health, just this is just one example of a resource that people go to, shows that there's clearly an issue that's going on within the medical workforce. Now, mental health problems, burnout and stress are not just common in medicine. We all know that these are quite common problems in any particular in, in any organization. Um when you're overworked, when you're completely stretched out you are going to end up having problems um and obviously some people are more um susceptible and they have underlying or have issues when it comes to coping with stress that contributes to them being um at a higher risk of having depression or feeling suicidal or being burnt out so it's just a it's a it's a massive topic obviously we can't go into the the stats, all the stats out there for mental health within doctors, but these are just a couple, um, just for you to think about and to just reflect on and to think about how you're feeling, if you're burnt out, if you feel like you need to access some resources before you get to the point where you know you're you're really struggling and uh, potentially thinking about harming yourself. So we're just going to talk a bit about the impact of mental health issues on the workforce. Um, as we've heard, you know, it's unfortunately quite a common thing within medicine, um, quite a common thing among doctors for people to have mental health problems, whether that be depression, anxiety. Now, um, my my main issue with this whole this whole topic, right, is I feel like doctors and not people see doctors as, you know, not infallible, but people see them as People don't really see the person behind the doctor. Does that make sense? De- dehuman- de- there's dehumanisation. Yeah, there's dehumanisation. 
and being a doctor, I've only been it for a couple of years, so I can't talk. I don't have all the experience in, in, in comparison to a consultant who's been doing it for a long time. But from the little that I've seen and little that I've witnessed, I can see why people can easily become depressed or suicidal. Because I have many a times been burnt out. And I have many a times had people tell me, close friends who are also doctors tell me, Manuela, from the conversation we're having, you sound burnt out. Mm. You need to do something about it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I have seen many of my current F2 friends, and when we were in F1, I have seen them with my own eyes, seen how burnt out they were. Completely burnt out. We've talked about it countless times. I've talked about this issue countless times with my friends at work about burnout, about feeling low in mood, about feeling anxious, um, feeling like you're not doing enough, feeling like you're Mm. you're not being a best doctor that you can for your patients and all of these things. And it's quite common. And I'm happy that we're having this conversation because there's people out there who don't necessarily may have the space yeah. that we have with our friends or with our um, colleagues to talk about these sort of issues. Definitely. And I just wanted to say when we were, like when I was preparing for this, I was thinking like, do I, I'm a human being, obviously I experience stress and burnout and stuff but a lot of the time in my head I always tell myself and it was always the same with exams in med school I tell myself okay this is a lot but I'm doing all right I've got it so I think oh yeah yeah I'm coping but one of the telltale signs for me is how my body reacts so in my head everything is like yep you're fine it's a lot it's a great it's a big volume of work um you're tired you haven't you haven't really had time to sit or eat properly um but my body tells me other things when it's time to sleep like I'm tired but I can't sleep or like I get a rage and heartburn or sometimes like feel a bit shaky and I feel like that's my body telling me like you're actually you're actually stressed you're actually anxious you're you're overwhelmed so even in your head if you think all is good I think it's also important to pay attention to the physical signs of mental health yeah definitely because obviously the the mind, the mind and the body are so interconnected. And like you said, sometimes mentally you may feel like I'm a resilient person, I'm unfazed, but actually your body is going to then start showing you, actually, you have an issue. Now, I, I remember at church a couple of, I think it was a couple of months ago, I went to um like a brunch and we, we, it was a mental health brunch, right? And it was for the young adults. So we had two people talking about their mental health and how it's been affected during COVID. And one of the, um, the people speaking was a nurse. And she was talking about how she didn't realise that she had depression and anxiety till she went and went she went to counselling. Because her workplace put on counselling sessions for staff that worked in intensive care. So she went to this, met this counsellor. She told this counsellor she's got no mental health problem. She's fine, you know? Typical, you know, I'm fine, I'm good. And then the mental health, um, the mental health professionals started asking her questions. Like, what do you do in your spare time? She was like, all I do is sleep. How do you feel all the time? Tired. All these little, little things. And eventually, once they came down to it, she realised that she actually had depression and anxiety. Um, and when she spoke about this, I was like, wow. Sometimes when you're just in the job, you're like, okay, I want to get up and go, get up and go, get up and go. But then you don't take time to think about what you're doing or reflect upon how you're actually coping, and if you are coping, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I think we've just accepted it as part and parcel of the job. Yeah, and it shouldn't be like that. I think 
we should always reflect upon how we're feeling and um, reflect upon how we're doing in that instance. So nowadays, whenever I remember there was a time in F1, like, I was super, super tired, right? I mean, I'm tired all the time, but this tiredness was beyond tired. I was not just tired in my physical sense, but I was tired mentally and emotionally. I had nothing left to give, as in I was empty. I had nothing to give my patients. To the point I remember I was going, I was, I was telling um, I was telling Shama um, and my friend Lizzie, right? I was telling them both um, on separate occasions within that one week that when I, when I go to work, I really don't care. I just don't care. Mm. Like, I don't care about my patients. I don't care about anything. I just don't care. And then when I was saying that, I was like, that's not who I am, though. I'm a, a compassionate person that cares. Mm. That sometimes even cries because how, of how much I care for my patients. I got to the point that I was so tired and burnt out that Moyo, I just did not care. I honestly did not care. And then so now I, they, I was like, that's terrible. Like They were like, you know, that's, you sound burnt out. You need a break. You, mm. need to, you need a break. Whether that's calling sick, whatever it is, just t- take time off. Yeah. Because that's not safe for you as a person. Yeah. If you feel like you just if you've lost that compassion, and that's what makes you a doctor that you know to be actually to provide compassionate care and to be able to empathize with your patients. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. And um, yeah, it's not fair for the patients. And I don't know. It just seems like a fish a vicious cycle in my head as as you're speaking. You know, the conditions lead to stress, lead to burnout. And the conditions aren't optimal for the kind of care we would wish to deliver for our patients. We all know it could be 10 times better, but it just isn't. And people are working the best of what they have. But in your head, your thoughts are telling you, you know, you can still be doing more. You've not done enough. Um, And then there's tiredness and stress on top of that. And then that leads to you not actually being the best for your patients. And the cycle just continues. And then patients complain about you know, the doctors didn't take time, the doctors didn't really listen, but um, not to make excuses, because there are there are some doctors out there that can, can do better. That one's just a personality trait, <laughs> work on it. Um, but yeah, it's just like, we have so much to give, but it's been, the conditions have just sucked the life out of yeah. the doctors. Um, yeah. And I do believe like it's, it's led to an, a huge shift in the workforce. Mm-hmm. So I think from as as early as 2011, so what about 11 years ago, there have been predictions that the workforce is going to decrease. So here are some stats I found about it. Um, last year, 2,500 doctors quit the NHS. The mm-hmm. NHS, that's already very short-staffed. Yeah. 2,500 left. Um, the BMA looked at... Um, spoke to people who were considering leaving the NHS, about 2,000 people, 50% wanted to work fewer hours, 25% mm-hmm. wanted a career break, 21% mm-hmm. were considering leaving altogether for another career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this has led to the to the rise of locumin as well. Mm-hmm. So on my ward, um, you know, we're always short-staffed, so there are a lot of locums and when we're working together quite frequently. Um, and at least, like... Five of them have tried to rope me into just locumming for a year. And I'm tempted, you know, to get that nice healthy deposit for a house. But for me, like, 
I just want to I just want to do a run through program like I think that's what I'm ready for but they keep telling me like the pros of locumin the the yeah. freedom you don't have to do all these tick box exercises for your portfolio yeah. the choice to pick where you where you work when you work the pay the the opportunity to experience different areas and kind of yeah. help that allow that to help you make a decision um where you want to go forward so in 2011 out of you know, people who completed the F2 year, 71% went straight into specialty training. Um, from the foundation program training, I think this was 2017, so before the pandemic, only 37% of doctors went straight into training. Wow. Um, and some of the reasons were, you know, because a lot of people, for instance, I don't have an obs and gynae jobs. If I was interested in it, I'd probably like for a bit and then do an application, strengthen my application. So uncertainty was a reason. However, burnout was one of the main reasons. Um, so this is article. I can't remember what it's called. It's called The Conversation. I don't know. I found it a bit condescending. But so one of the quotes from it was like, millennials and Gen Zs, they differ from Generation X. They feel entitled to a good work-life balance. And I personally didn't like the use of the word entitled because Mm -hmm. it's like, it's not an entitlement. It should actually be a requirement. If you want your doctors to be the best, good good work-life balance is Um, non-negotiable. And I I applaud our our generation. And it's not even just across medicine. It's across all industries. I see in my brother's industries and my friend's industries. You know, people are, if you're not happy in one place, you go and locum or you leave or you do what's best for you. And it's just unfortunate that this is combined with the current funding of the um, of the NHS, the current understaffed, under-resourced, long waiting list. It's not optimum and something has, something has to shift, but it's not going to be us at the end of the day. And I think it it points and it, it says that, that burnout and these working conditions and the impact on mental health is very important and something has to be done about it because you're going to lose more doctors. How can it go from 70% to under 40% of people wanting to go straight into to training? Yeah. And actually, what I'd like to know the, the stats for um, the 2020, actually. Yeah, I tried to have think- a look. But, yeah, I think it might have gone up a bit just because people couldn't travel. Because um, um, I know a lot of people went to training because they couldn't travel. Um, but I, yeah, I'd like to know if that's if the statistic is still similar, yeah. or if there's been a slight increase in amount of people going from foundation training to um, sort of specialty training. Yeah, it's weird because I meet like F four, and I'm like F four. I was. I oh, just died medical F7 school, and you were a foundation doctor. <laughs> yeah, I met an F seven once at a festival. F seven. Nice. Yeah, she was like, she was like, um, what did she even say? She basically works a bit, and then she goes around the world traveling. Yeah, honestly, the locals. She was living her best life. They're really trying to recruit me, but I think maybe if yeah. I was younger, I would have considered it. But I've kind of done two years of like normal working or whatever mm-hmm. before uni, like. So, well, you're still young. Still young. Listen, I sit down like an old woman these days. <laughs> <laughs> you know the Jamaican women that sit down. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, I'm telling oh, you, nice. there's something on the other side of 25. <laughs> Stop it! I'm hitting that soon. <laughs> I'm joking. Okay. <laughs> 
I'll let you know when I get there. <laughs> but yeah, back to the back to the conversation we're having. Um, I I think it's, it's that's like almost half the amount of half half reduction amount of people who are actually going in for um sort of foundation training into um specialty training actually. Mm. If you think about that, if you think about that stuff, gosh, yeah. it's it's terrible. Um. It's obviously it's terrible for the specialties if they're having less of less people coming in. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it shows that people want to be in control a little bit of their own work schedule. Yeah. Um, and the current I don't know about you, but I suppose maybe it varies on which hospital you're at. But speaking to other foundation doctors, you can really you really feel like sometimes you're doing a service provision job rather than actual training. Um Oh no, you are. You are. It's not even feel you are. Yeah, yeah. Because um, well, so, the other day, I think it was like a few weeks ago, I was sitting down and I was thinking about all the different teaching sessions I've been to since the start of foundation training. Um, now I was like, the majority of them have literally been an ex- like a bit of like an extension of what you've done in medical school, which is fine to recap. Mm. But when I look at you know, um, I think I was saying this to Shaman the other day. I was saying, as a foundation doctor, you'll be on a rotation, let's say a gastro job. And you've never been to endoscopy before. The only times I'm, I'm on gastro at the moment, and the only time, to be fair, yeah, I've never been to endoscopy. When I was on surgery, I've been to endoscopy, um, but that's like a patient was sick after endoscopy rather oh, okay. than for my learning. Yeah, yeah, because I was just thinking, like, you know, and now my hospital actually they let the F ones go into surgery, so they they actually wanted into um, into surgery and see stuff and mm. maybe do stuff. But I was thinking when I was in surgery, I never went in, I never stepped into the theatre. Like I'm there telling patients, are oh, you gonna go, you know, you're gonna go have this operation, um, blah, blah, blah. Just feedback in information from what the, the seniors have told me. Mm. And I'm like, I'm telling you this, but do I even know what it looks like? You know what, yeah. I think that that de- definitely depends on where you train. So for where That's I That's what I was thinking at the moment. Moment. it's different. Yeah, um, we have self-development time. Um, mm-hmm. So in surgery, it was half a day. In medicine, mm-hmm. it's a whole day. So you can do what you want with that time. Mm-hmm. So for instance, um, well, I just finished like collecting data for an audit tick box exercise. Um, but <laughs> the, let's all be honest with ourselves. <laughs> let's all be very honest here. <laughs> um, but they're going to have the meeting presenting it on one mm-hmm. of my SDT days. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. actually probably join the team's meeting just mm-hmm. to see like what's actually done with the data and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. When I was on my surgical rotation, we had not everyone, but there was opportunity to go and help and scrub in, in theatre. Sometimes if they never had like a theatre assistant and the ward was fine, then you'd get called. Yeah. So I think mine is okay, but it's up to you to be responsible to yeah. seek those opportunities. Yeah. I suppose, like I say, now in my hospital, things have changed a bit where um, F1s can actually do a bit in theatre. But I was just thinking, like, there are certain rotations that you go through. For example, you might have a cardiology job. Mm. But you might not have the opportunity to see um, certain like, procedures being done mm. or um, certain, like, you know, maybe besides seeing a bedside echo, you don't get to see on the other echoes being done, like a um, transesophageal. Do you know what I mean? So mm. I was thinking, hmm... Like all these, or even if you've got a respiratory job, how many bronchoscopies do you get to go to watch? Like, there's just all these different things when I think about it. I'm like, the majority of the time, F1s, F2s, INTs yeah. are stuck on the wards just doing war jobs. And it's meant to be a training program. Yeah. But a, 
a training program where you're paying for exams and you're not actually doing anything but besides stay, staying on the ward. Is it really a training program? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not sure if you saw this tweet the other day. Someone was like, okay, other industries, things like audits and mm-hmm. all the kind of quality development mm-hmm. things um, and things that make the workplace better, people are paid extra to do it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Whereas in the NHS, it's called training, but you're yeah. basically, they're also getting a service for free. Yeah. Which is kind of cheeky. It is, I mean, it is cheeky. A lot of the the things that we do are, you know, low key. Like, hmm, interesting, interesting. Like, okay, if it was in a different sector, I'd be getting paid for this. But you know, because it's all in the name of training, yeah, you got you got to do it. You know, um, they said it's exploitation. Yeah, it's like, I thought that's quite a stupid <laughs> word. <laughs> that's what the tweet said. Uh, yeah, I can see it. And the other thing is, like, you know when you do stuff like audits, most of the time you do it in your spare time. I mean, now that they've got SDT, things are okay. Yeah, they're a bit better now. So you can do it during your SDT time. But previously, people were doing it in their spare time. I know people who will stay at work for, like, 10 p.m. collecting data on their days on their days off um, mm-hmm. for, for for audits. And let's be honest, not everybody wants to do an audit. Not everybody wants to do research. Take Some people just want to be clinical. But, you know... We've all got to do that mandatory audit or quip once a year, yeah. <laughs> depending on what specialty you're doing. So I think sort of these these other things contribute to burnout, not just the job and working on the job, but the extra things that you have to do outside of the job for your training. Um, mm. We need to think about, you know, assessing postgraduate exams and studying for, it, studying for that for as it. well whilst working. Not everyone, you know, you're entitled to study leave. However, um, Depending on where you work, depending on how the road looks like, you may not necessarily always get that to believe. Um, which I, I don't think that's legal. I think that's actually yeah, legal. you have to fight for it. I think as well, yeah. maybe the the flame and the fight has gone out in some people. But yeah. for me, like there are certain things I know, like no, and I'm gonna fight for it. Yeah, like I will be in your inbox. I will be calling you, and you will just give it to me at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So, like for instance, like. I didn't agree with my getting half a study day while I was in surgery because it didn't make mm-hmm. sense. If I was the only one on colorectal, who am I going to give the bleep to? How can I take, how can I work for half a day? It didn't make sense. I ended up missing a lot of them. Um, yeah. And when it got to the end of the rotation, there was short stuff. I said, well, that's, that's a, that's a, that's you a problem. problem. This is my, <laughs> my, my self-study time, which I'm entitled to. And I had a lot mm-hmm. of portfolio stuff and things to actually do. I'm not going to rest too. I'm not going to lie. I don't study during my study time. <laughs> but I still get my stuff done. But it's your time yeah. to do as you please. Um, yeah. And I think don't let the don't let the fight go out of you. I think we're so assertive for our patients, but we forget ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually true, actually. I think... But do you think it's because so many, so many people have become disillusioned and just tired and knocked down and beaten? Yeah. So that, that assertiveness is just gone when it comes to having to stand up for themselves. You know, they've just been beaten down so many times by the organisation. Yeah. That they just they just go with whatever whatever the the the, um, the higher ups say. Yeah, which is which is sad. You know, mm. you're not a cog in a wheel. You're a human being. You're training. Mm. 
you need time to train to do all the extra stuff that's required Mm -hmm. as well as working your job to provide a service we're doing both but it seems Mm -hmm. to be 90 percent one and five percent the other the other which you really have to fight for yeah so Uh, and i think with with the way things are going as well you know besides having a high um high dropout rates low lower retention in certain specialties we're also going to have more of a drive towards less than full-time training actually mm. you'll see more and more people going with 80 percent 60 percent yeah and um, it seems that you can go 80 percent and still finish more or less within the same amount of time maybe a couple of months extra compared to your colleagues doing 100 percent but you still what's finish what's a couple training. months like nothing. exactly you finish your training within sort of a decent time frame um so that's quite interesting, actually. I think more people are realizing that their well-being does come first. Mm, that and... reminds me, I need to look into that for GP. <laughs> There's no rush. Yeah, like your your well-being comes comes first, and no amount of NHS resilience workshops, resilience lectures, well-being lectures, or well-being tutorials are going to help you. You have to find out what works best for you, mm. and I think. You know, resilience is one of those things that it gets banded about throughout from medical school all the way into the, you know, from medical school all the way into when you start working. And I have been to numerous or numerous mandatory resilience talks, workshops as part of teaching sessions. And, you know, most of the time I'm like, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but this resilience workshop that you're putting on really... That's not what I need for my well-being right now. I understand that it's a GMC, um, it's part of the GMC framework and trusts slash medical schools have to tick a box to say that they're teaching you how to be resilient. Um, But half the time, what we need is to have access or have someone show us where the resources are to access things that will help our well-being and also workplaces. Yeah, sorry. Feel people need to feel comfortable to access them as well. Exactly, and also, in addition to people putting on resilience workshops, maybe they should try and improve the working conditions of the hospitals listen, or, or as, their GP practices. Listen, as you're talking about resilience, basically, have you heard of this is going to hurt the Adam K thing? I've watched it. Really, I, <laughs> I can't. Really did, but I watched it. I read the book, but I'm not going to watch it because. Yeah. I don't want to. Although I, I think it will be dramatically different from my current experience. I, mm-hmm. I'm having a good experience as an F1, and long may it mm-hmm. continue. Um, but people were talking about it, so there was a hashtag um, on Twitter. People sharing their experiences of like foundation training, and then this. I don't. I don't know if it was in like a newspaper article, but this is what a doctor, doctor for life, right? Oh, I think I seen this. Yeah, he said. I qualified as a doctor and started work as a houseman in 1974 when houses were like 10, 10 pound and uni was free. Anyway, <laughs> on one, one particular rotation, I routinely worked 23 days in a row with six nights off and I loved it. And I still loved it at my retirement after 40 years. I have not read Adam Kay's book, This Is Going To Hurt. But I would hate any budding doctor to get the idea that medical life is simply unremitting misery. If you are mentally suited, it is a demanding but highly rewarding career. And yeah, there's still a lot of that old school mentality mm-hmm. if you're mentally suited. 
Um, and I think this is a bit of Stockholm syndrome, to be honest, because working 23 days in a row, why? That's not safe. You need a break. There's a UK, um, not UK, sorry, European working derivative times for a reason. I just having six nights off. That's like a what? I don't even know. I don't even know the maths. But if you if you calculate that per month, so you're working basically over three weeks and then mm-hmm. about a couple of days to recover at the end of the month. That's not healthy. Um, no, it's not. And there's there's this view that from a certain generation that oh, you know we're what do you what do they call us the cotton wool generation that we're not resilient we're not mentally. Mm-hmm. Um, the snowflake generation snowflake generation that's the word i'm looking for but you know what um a lot of them overlooked the fact that parking was free they had Mm -hmm. free staff accommodation probably Mm -hmm. food um now people commute ages to get to work um pay ridiculous for parking pay ridiculous Mm -hmm. amount for petrols have to pay for their rent and do the job Mm -hmm. on top um and Conditions like that make a difference. And mm-hmm. I think it also takes a lot more mental resilience to call out a system which has been which has been archaic and not moved with the times and be like, no, this isn't working for me. It takes a lot to stand up and go against what has always been rather than mm-hmm. being beaten down and just to succumb in, oh, this is just expected as, as a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and to allow change rather than be stuck in that, well, that happened to me and I'm I managed fine so you guys stop complaining and pull yourself up by the bootstraps no I agree and I actually I think um you can't always compare different eras so in that era being a a junior doctor might look very different to what junior doctor's role is today Mm. now one there was one weekend I was working on call and because we we actually had this similar conversation with one of our consultants and they were talking about how when they were junior doctor, you know, they, they worked through super hard. They hardly called the consultants to come in overnight. But then she explained about, you know, how unsafe it was. Well, it pushed you to work harder and it pushed you to do more than mm. what you do normally. So it kind of thrust you into that place where you have to um, undertake roles and responsibilities that you wouldn't feel comfortable doing. Mm. But she also mentioned how unsafe it was by the, by the hours that they worked. Um and she mentioned about how there used to be a stronger culture back in the day. So the mess was really lively. There were lots of events going on. They had a lot of support for each other. If you think about it now, um, we have I have a, a, a decent mess, and they, you know they do they they do really well. But during COVID, we couldn't meet up. Mm. We couldn't meet up with each other, and that took a toll on a lot of people's mental health. You know, I started working as a doctor during 2020, so. I, I graduated early because of the pandemic. I started working early because of the pandemic and worked completely throughout. I didn't really have a summer holiday because I, I decided to um, do FIY1. And I did it so quite late. And then obviously been working as an F1, now an F2. Worked through the um, the winter when we had the second wave or second wave last year, which was you know very hard, very mm. tough, very grueling time. That was in December when the country was going into lockdown, and now that we now we know that Boris and Cole were doing parties in Downing Street at this time, mm. many of us couldn't meet each other. You'd go to you go home, go to work, come back, repeat cycle, 
it was a very stressful time for us. We were short-staffed, people were going off of COVID. Mm. Um, you go to work and they'll be having to pull staff from all, all of other departments to try and fill gaps. It was hard. It was grueling. A lot of my friends cried. I cried. It was terrible because you didn't have, you couldn't freely travel. So you couldn't go see family and friends. Mm. You couldn't socialise with people at work, outside of work. So all you did was work. And that was it. And it was hard. It was very, very hard. It was a hard time. And I think people have to be kinder, um, especially I think seniors have to be a bit more kinder to, yeah. to their junior staff junior staff and junior colleagues. Um, and understand that a lot of them have been affected during the pandemic and pre-pandemic with, with loneliness, yeah. with the stress of the job having to see so many people dying, you know, that in itself, imagine 20-something, fresh fresh out of med school, mm. thrust into the world of work, you know, seeing people die up and down because of this pandemic. Like, that in itself, who wouldn't have mental like, mental trauma from that? Well said, man. Hmm. No, people don't, don't tell war veterans to get over themselves, do they now? It's true. I mean, I... I mean, I hate the whole analogy of frontline workers being like um, doctors being compared to soldiers. Yeah. But it's sort of a you know a similar emotional um, burden if you work with human beings. It doesn't matter what role you do, whether it be a nurse, a doctor. You're working with human beings and seeing people die, seeing people at their their worst, it does take a, a toll on you as a human being. Definitely. At the end of the day, you have emotions. Mm. You feel. You know. You can see someone and be like, oh my goodness, that person is the same age as my, my mother or my father. Or mm. they have a similar background to my parent and seeing what they're going through mm. can make you think about your own family members. And that, that in itself can, can, be, a, can be quite a, uh, not a, it can be a stressful, but also an emotionally difficult um, situation to be in. Wow. Yeah. This has been... Um... I don't know the word to use, sobering, heavy, but it's, mm. it's mental health. It's not really supposed to be like, like light-hearted and full of laughs. It's just it's just a matter of fact. But, you know, we don't want to unpack all that for you, um, on you, without, <laughs> without leaving you with some tips and resources. So I think I'll just start off with what works for me. Um, I think everyone's different. So I think... A lot of the advice is actually going to be generic, but common things are common, like they're there for a reason. So I think we've all heard it before, talk to someone. Um, And yeah, never underestimate the value of just having um, a listening ear, um, whether it's someone, someone professional or a trusted friend, colleague, family member, your partner, just someone who can listen to you not dehumanize you as well because I know some people like oh you know oh my gosh you're like a doctor or your nurse you're so amazing like you're so like just someone who would just listen I think that's what a lot of people want um exercise that's one thing that (laughs) until Christmas I was keeping on top of really well um, but yeah, just getting your body moving and your mind off work, exercise is really good, releasing endorphins, keeps you healthy as well, helps you to sleep well. And that moves me on to my next point, rest, um, sleep, eat, rest, recuperate, nourish yourself. Um, 
you have to be, a locum told me this, you have to be selfish and look after number one, because if you're well looked after, then you can do your job. And for me, what always, always, always works, um, sometimes I feel like I'm a, I'm, I can be shy with like talking about things, um, but just to get everything out of my head, down on paper, I, I love journaling, like a lot of people that know me love, I have my journal, um, whether it's a really good day, or it's a really crappy day, um, I'll pick up my pen, paper, just write out my thoughts, and it's just like a, a burden offloaded onto the page, and one thing I like about journaling is like, you can flip back in a week or so, or a couple months, and you can see how you felt then, how you've developed, um, it's really good for, for just documenting where you're at, and for me as a Christian as well, prayer always helps me. That's all. Um, decent advice, actually. Yeah, I think I should share the same sentiment. Eating well, exercising, making sure you're rested enough. Um, and resting, does I, I think it's not just sleeping, but also doing hobbies as well. Mm. I think that's a really good way to rest. Um, and when you're on your days off, try to not think about work, you know. Have time, obviously you may have to do portfolio stuff or um, do some extra reading or whatnot, also different exams, but at least have a day where you're just solely doing nothing work-related. I think that's super important because sometimes you can have a day off where we think we're resting and we're filling that day up with other things that just stresses us even more, so... Yeah, and I'd also like to add to realise when you are burning out or struggling early on, um, have people in your life that you go to and you talk about these things regularly where they can pick up the signs when you may not be able to so that you can access the help you need early on rather than before it gets too late. Now, talking about accessing help and accessing services... There are very various services out there. We touched on a couple of them actually during our um, episode on mental health um, in our first season, but I'm just going to add in some additional ones. These are more tailored towards doctors, although medical students can access sort of the BMA counselling service. So one of the most common ones is the BMA. So they have a counselling service, which is a 24-hour telephone line that doctors and medical students can access to and just talk about problems and that they're facing in regards to their mental health the bma also has um the the doctors for doctors service the doctor support service um in addition there's other sort of groups that you can access so you can obviously access occupational health in your local trust you can also speak if you're a foundation doctor to your foundation um tutor they tend to be a doctor and you can have a chat with them and we'll go after stuff like maybe reducing your hours or going less than full time and just, you know, disclose what issues you're facing. There's also the NHS Practitioner Scheme, um, Practitioner Health Programme, sorry. So they're a free and confidential service um, run by the NHS to support doctors and dentists who have mental or physical health concerns and or addiction problems. Um, so... Unfortunately, um, apparently this service covers dentists living in the London area, but I'm I'm sure you can have a look into it if you don't live in London. Um, so these are a couple of resources that you can access outside of you know the normal senior GP, 
uh, or going to occupational health. So just to keep in mind that if you are struggling and you're a doctor, there are services out there that you can access that can help you in hours and out of hours as well. Oh, and I forgot to mention one resource that I recently found out, and it's called Frontline 19. So it's not just for doctors, but it's for all frontline frontline healthcare workers. Um, and basically, you can contact them through the website and fill in a an, like a, an application form, and they'll match up with a therapist. So it will start during the um, so COVID nineteen pandemic, just to help NHS workers and frontline staff who are struggling with mental health problems. Okay, so now on to our podcast for this episode. We have Tom Jenkins, a 41-year-old male who presents at A&E with a two-day history of vomiting and epigastric pain. He's had two episodes of vomiting up fresh red blood. He feels lightheaded and is complaining of palpitations at present. He's had a one-month history of worsening heartburn, no weight loss, no dysphagia, and no melina. Past medical history, he has osteoarthritis of both knees, which he's taking regular ibuprofen for. Social history, he's a smoker, smokes roughly 10 cigarettes a day and drinks approximately 20 units of alcohol a week. These are the following questions. Question number one, what are the common causes of upper GI bleed? Question number two, what are your top three differentials for Tom's presenting complaint? And question number three, what is the Glasgow Blatchard score? Keep an eye out for our learning bites to find the answers to these questions. Thank you for listening to this recent episode. Remember to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Leave a like and comment. Follow us on our socials at SimplyMedics on Instagram and Twitter. Or drop us an email, simplymedics at gmail.com. Enjoy the rest of your week and thanks again for listening.